this is, I think, what poetry does well, is tries to say things that you can't say. Hello and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I am Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here with Greg Bird, who is a poet and also was a fellow through the Creative Pinellas Professional Artist Grants in 2016. In order to be chosen and receive that grant, Greg, you put a number of poems up on the application website and submitted them as part of your portfolio. And I pulled down three of them that I liked very much. One was, this is the name for the God who speaks. One was Christmas poem, and the other was going away for the weekend. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you would start off our podcast by reading one of these poems. Sure, sure. And, uh, and to clarify, those are all newer poems that are required for the, for the grant. Uh, they can't be any of the older ones, which... Kind of a neat, neat requirement. Let's let's go with this is the name for the God who speaks. Uh, that just came out in Appalachian Review. Father, you would know these primal prayers, light flashing in the west behind live oaks, a sky-slashed language dead after conquest. From that living world, we share only lightning, an old God speaking light out of darkness, a chant of rain as alphabet, where water flowing is a word. 25 years ago, after your divorce, we stood in front of the old Florida Keys house where I grew up. You poured concrete there to appease those Calusa gods, then steered your small boat into their vast ocean, where you taught me words that cannot be spoken, for green raid depths, the language of whale sharks surfacing, fish blood across decks and on hands. Loneliness of the Gulf Stream moves over the horizon, lightning chants, dark by the time you hear its name. When I read that, I, I just sort of stopped breathing, I think, for a minute <laughs> or two. And you said that's a fairly new poem. So uh, where did that poem come from? This was a really interesting poem as far as, as the development of it. My father died in 2012 at the age of 70, I started drafting this poem, and I was really thinking much more about just about connections to sort of mythic ideas and landscape. There was a storm that came, you know, one of our Tampa Bay storms, and I kind of watched it from my study as it came through and, you know, changed the trees and got dark and all that kind of stuff. And so I just started thinking about how would more ancient indigenous people have seen storms and what kind of words would they use for things. And I really wasn't aware I was writing sort of an elegy for my dad because I'd written a bunch of those things already and kind of had the feeling that I'd put that stuff in the closet or, you know, put it in the drawer and, you know, kind of finish that. But of course you, you never do, I think. And as I worked this poem out, it finally got to me that, oh, this is what I was doing. And when I sent it to um, Michael Trammell at Appalachian Review, I sent three other poems and this one. And I thought this was the weird one. You know, this is this is the whack ball one that I'll just kind of send and figure they won't take that, but it's, it's okay. And they took this one and uh, sent back the others. So the title, This is the Name for the God Who Speaks. Is there a name in that poem? <sighs> 
Or I is don't know. the poem that's, itself the name? I think I think the poem itself is is the name. That's it was. I wasn't really thinking very carefully about the title, or at least I wasn't thinking very consciously about the title. It just seemed to be something that made sense. And there's also in of you know different traditions the idea that you don't speak the name of the god. And um, I would I would think that in a way it's there's that line that says. Um, you taught me words that cannot be spoken for several different things. And um, that was thinking about my father's, the things that he taught me as we were fishing, and he would point things out. I'm not very good at uh, translation, but I'm also kind of interested how when one, from one language to the next, there's often, there's no word that you can translate it into. And this is, I think, what poetry does well, is tries to say things that you can't say by using, you know, archetype and symbol and things like that. A couple things jump to my mind about the poem. One is it's very clearly rooted in geography. Mm-hmm. We're out in the Gulf, mm-hmm. and and you say you say as much, and it's historical for you, I believe, because it's referring to your youth. Mm-hmm. So, did you grow up in Florida, or? I grew up in um, just south of Key Largo on an island called Plantation Key, which is now, they call it part of the Isla Morada group of villages or something like that. So it's hard to find Plantation Key, you know, mentioned actually as a place. I, my parents moved down to the Keys when I was uh, three months old. And actually it was maybe five, four or five months after that, that Hurricane Betsy came through. And I remember... My dad used to tell me, you don't remember this, but I remember uh, as an infant being in the building that my parents had taken refuge in. It was a concrete block building. And the windows being boarded up and a little bit of light coming through and everybody being scared. You know, just a real quick snapshot of that. I don't know. I guess guess storms become really important when you grow up in, in Florida and especially a place like the Keys because you're so exposed. You wrote somewhere in your biography that you are the first person in your family to go to college mm-hmm. and that you kind of came from a very working class background. Uh, when I was little, up to maybe the time I was five or seven, uh, my parents lived in a cottage, this little cottage, and they were caretakers for a larger house in Key Largo. And my father put up television antennas, he would climb up on towers and things. He would repair TVs. He eventually had a, he and my mother had a, an appliance and television business. So I grew up, you know, sweeping, sweeping things up, following my dad around, delivering washers and refrigerators and helping to unload trucks and things like that. And the, the friends of the family were carpenters and people who laid carpet. So, and there were also people around who were professionals who lived in that same area. Uh, there was a two or three professors from Germany we got to know. One guy was a he's a scientist. He was an inventor. He helped invent the, the pacemaker. Oh, wow. And he lived in Key Largo, and he would bring his telescope down and set it up on our dock. So it was, it was an interesting combination of people, and I guess I never really saw that as being strange. 
when I started writing, I was really I was really more interested in fiction. I was interested in, I started reading Hemingway and you know, Old Man in the Sea early on, and then some of his short stories, and really started doing that, and then got into poetry, and found a focus writing poetry for quite a while. But most recently, I've been on a sabbatical from uh, St. Pete College, and my project for that is a World War I novel. And I'm interested in that for a few reasons. Uh, one, I've, I've always been interested in flight. I've always been interested in that period from some of the World War I poets like Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, people like that. And of course, some of Hemingway's writing at the time. Also, I've been working with veterans a lot at the college, and I certainly didn't feel that I had a right to write their experiences. But writing about a character from the First World War was something I'd always been drawn to. And I saw a letter from Hemingway where he was giving a, a reading someplace in Italy, I guess. This Italian man came up to him and said, you wrote that book? He said, yes. And he says, about the, the battle at this place. And he says, yes. And he says, I was there too. Oh, wow. And Hemingway said, I wasn't there. Oh. He said, I just, you know, I did my research. I, you know, I, I wrote about it. He says, no, no, I know you were there. And that kind of told me that if you, you know, if you do it respectfully and if you do the right kind of research, if you try to put the right details in, you can do a good job of something like that. Well, and it's possible. Sure, because if it wasn't possible, then we couldn't ever reflect back on history. And because you could only write about it if you were there, we would be able to only write about it for one generation. Right. And of course, we're looking at right now, this is the 100th anniversary of World War One. So what do you think motivated you to try to tell that story through fiction instead of through poetry? That's, you know, that's something that I tell my students sometimes, that you really have to be aware of what the particular thing you're writing wants to be. And sometimes you'll write a poem that just won't come together. And it's not the poem's fault. It doesn't want to be a poem. It wants to be an essay or it wants to be a short story. And sometimes, you know, it can be both. You know, sometimes you can have a story that's an essay or you can have a poem that you work into a story, but sometimes they just don't want to be. And the shape of them doesn't work quite in that way. Somebody had asked Flannery O'Connor, why do you not have more black protagonists in your work? And she said, because that's somebody else's story. Somebody else, should, a black writer should write that. And there are different perspectives. You know, people write from a lot of different perspectives. But I, I think a lot about that when I talk to uh, the veterans I work with. And this, this one young man who had been a, um, uh, a medic in um, Iraq had you know, told me this one story. And I just, I really thought he wouldn't have, he would never write this down himself just because of the things he was interested in, and it wouldn't, wouldn't go away. So, so anyway, I, I wrote this down, but it's not something I, com I commonly do. It's called G.I. Bill, and I think most people would know some of the details in here. An IED is an improvised explosive device that would blow up along the side of the road. Um, LT is uh, short for uh, lieutenant. Uh, Doc is what they would call in this case, a corpsman, since he was, um, I found out, I get, I get schooled a lot by the vets, and um, he was embedded with the Marines. Marines don't have their own medics, so they get medics from the Navy, and the Marines are under the Navy, and so um, the Navy medics are called corpsmen. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing um, this uh, phrase in Arabic, uh, shukran jazilan, which is thank you. GI Bill. 
The IEDs, acrid breath, haunted the air while foreign men screamed on the sand. My Marines all checked okay, except for a hand wound. The Iraqi troops in the next truck did not fare as well. One held his chest, but his friend would not let me open his jacket. I argued in English, tried my best Arabic, then get the fuck back and pointed my pistol. I was the only doc there, petty officer second class, but I ordered my Marines, superficial cases by the truck, you hold this bag, LT call for medevac, barking orders, the Marines busting ass as my orderlies. They asked, hey doc, what do I do now? Because I was their corpsman when the world exploded. The Iraqi soldier kissed my hand and said, Shukran Jazilan. Today, my father asks, when the hell are you going to finish your degree? My friends ask when I'm going back to work. The young students here ask where there was a war and say it's good, nothing happened to me. That's a character poem. Mm-hmm. But, and focused on a very tight moment. In 2012, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And in, I think it was 1984, I read a book of poems by a poet named Paul Zweig, C-W-E-I-G. And it was called Eternity's Woods. And he wrote this in a stone farmhouse in France while he was dying of brain cancer. And uh, I was in one of Peter Meinke's poetry classes at the time. And the assignment was find a contemporary book of poetry that you like and read it and write some report on it. And so I did the, you know, found this book, was you know, really blown away by it and, you know, read all of his stuff and, you know, kept it on my bookshelf and would go back to it once in a while. And I woke up early one morning because it, you know, all that stuff messes with your sleep schedule. I was sitting in my office and I pulled that book off the shelf and I read this one poem where he was talking about getting up early. He said something like, you know, I rise early because I'm afraid if I don't take every opportunity, death will close on me or something like that. And as I read some of those poems, now I really understand what you mean. So, you know, I could have written something about the experience of cancer before that, but I don't think I really would have gotten it right. So how do you talk to students about writing from their own experience and, and finding that authentic voice and that authentic place? That's, that becomes really hard. And I think the authentic becomes wrapped up for a lot, of, especially um, younger people, becomes wrapped up in the experiences that they see portrayed. So there's a variety of different things I do, you know, whether it's in class or the, whether it's an individual student. Of course, reading good work, you know, by other people, whether it's poetry or, or fiction, to show them this is how you can do this helps. And in um, poetry, so sometimes I've cut up several, I'll, I'll take three or four poems, print them out large and, and cut them up, you know, cut all the words apart and give them out to the class and put some bowls in the front of the class and say, okay, you know, I want you guys to take all the articles and put them here, all the nouns and put them here, all the adverbs and adjectives and put them here, all the, you know, and, and just kind of lay out all those things. 
And they're often amazed that there's lots of nouns and there's lots of verbs. And then, you know, they get to the adjectives and there might be colors and, and textures, but there, there aren't too many happies and sads and things like that. And, and usually not even too many, too many articles. And I'll say, okay, go ahead and take, you know, several from each one of these and work on writing a poem. And, it, you know, it's, in a way it's kind of a cheat. It makes them, you know, basically they're using the good words that other poets have used. And, you know, I might have Theodore Rethke and Sylvia Plath and, uh, and June Jordan and, you know, John Berryman and, you know, who, who knows, you know, a big combination of these different words coming from different places. But they're all strong words. And doing that, they kind of get an idea of using somebody else's tools and what's in there and what's not. But the, you know, just trying to get them to come back to details. If they're ready, I like to kind of take them into my world because what I found is that archetype, symbolism, metaphor can really take you places that you can't really talk about things. You know, I'm really fascinated with, with archetype and you know, the way that those kinds of things, you know, you don't get why you're drawn to certain things. And... Well, give us another example from your work of that. Oh, how about... Uh... Christmas poem. That's something that's been weird about my poems is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Buddhist, I'm not Christian, but I, I end up with all kinds of Christian stuff in my poems, and, you know, Christian iconography. And so this is actually a, um, a cancer poem, but I was thinking a lot about some of the imagery that goes along uh, with Christmas time, you know, with the darkness and the contradictory sense of some of the songs, some of the carols and things. What do you mean? Well, um, like in God Bless You, Merry Gentlemen, it should sound like a pretty positive, upbeat thing, right? Right. But then the refrain is, Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Can and I... there's something about that time that is kind of strange. There's a, a hymn, an old hymn called uh, In the Dark Midwinter, and it's, it's all about this dark period of time. And, and I started thinking about how, you know, where all this came from, and, you know, 4,000 years ago. 5,000 years ago, when it starts getting dark and the sun goes further and further and further away. And, I mean, would you always know the sun's coming back? So I was thinking about that. I was thinking that's, in a way, that's kind of like the experience of dealing with, with cancer. You know, is it really going to come back? You know, is, is there any life beyond this? This poem mentions the green men. Um, if you go back into English folklore, there's a green man, and he's usually connected with fertility and all kinds of things. Uh, Christmas poem. There is more light each day. This is hard to tell people. In the dark midwinter, there seems only candlelight, a heavy feathered bird huddled in snow, sun moved far away, an insinuation of the depth of darkness like looking deep into an empty sky on a night when you are alone and cold wind blows off the water, hinting of nothing but drowning amidst the unforgiveness of salt. But you can tell when the days grow longer. The paper lying on the driveway is no longer greeted in stars. We arrive home before trees lose color in dusk's prelude. The dark matter Huddling like clouds in my chest has evaporated as sun comes out. My neighbor and I cut down the dead tree, threatening to topple into the house. Something small is born, a wish to live another forty years, 
a hint the body might feel as it once did, that those around me will give up on death, embrace the small owl cooing to its mate. There have been songs written of this, and people huddle together in small packs, thinking of green men and days that will never come. In days like this, I lie awake, imagining the days that would never come, and the windows grew dark as mirrors. I was the priest who spoke of light coming again without believing it. Talk to me, if you will, about actually creating that poem. When I was, uh, chemo was really annoying to me. Anybody who's been through it, uh, there's, there's something you can get called the chemo brain, where you can't remember things and you can't feel like you're thinking straight. And uh, in a way, this is one of the few poems that I wrote at that time, because I really felt like I just wasn't thinking very straight. And that really kind of made me rely on whatever that part of the brain is that finds symbols and images and whatever and makes makes those connections. Instead of thinking more deliberately about things, it was much more like, this seems to fit. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I need to kind of just go with it because I'm, I can't hold things together as well as I would. And then after after rereading this, um, you know, after I was clear of all that, making sure that things weren't going off in the wrong directions or being unclear or, you know, making sure that structurally the poem worked. And I, and I think that's a big part, at least of my poems, listening to, listening to that, that subconscious. Mm -hmm. And some of my students will say, sometimes I'll, I'll be able to do a great reading of, a, of one of their poems and they'll say, but I didn't mean that. And I was like, you didn't mean it consciously. So I think there's that part of, of the writing process, especially for poetry, but I've seen it somewhat in working on the novel too, that if there's some place you want to go in the, in the drafting process, you really have to go there and then be willing to say, no, it's later on, you know, no, that sounded like a good idea, but it doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't fit. But sometimes there, there's those connections that are coming out of that part of the mind that, that connects with, you know, with religion and music and architecture and, and all these kinds of things that aren't word-based and logical. I think that's like a perfect ending for our conversation. Leaves a little bit of a cliffhanger, but it, it wraps it up very nicely. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Oh, thank you. It was a very lovely conversation. Greg Berg, really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas Podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.